Hello and welcome to the Memory Chapel podcast. Memory Chapel is a small, rural, non-denominational Christian church located on Banceville Road in 84, Pennsylvania. On this podcast, we feature an edited version of our Sunday morning worship service at the chapel and the Bible teaching of Pastor David All. Thanks for joining us. And now, let's get to the worship. I hope you're not spoiled and expecting to read the Bible on the screen behind me. Because you're going to be looking into empty space this week. But if you have your scriptures and your opening, we're in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Your, your worship folder says that this is a message from James. Indeed, it is. It is, in fact, a simple message. It's called the simple life. But it's a hard message to hear. James chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 2 through 11. James 1, 2 through 11. James, the brother of our Lord, says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. This is the word of the Lord. Our message today has three main points. For those of you who like to jot down notes, I'll give those to you right now at the front end. Number one, God's purpose in testing. Verses two through four, God's purpose in testing. Verses five through eight, God's provision to our prayer. God's provision to our prayer. And thirdly, verses 9 through 11, God's perspective versus the world's perspective. God's perspective versus the world's perspective. We begin with verses 2 through 4, God's purpose in testing. And I told you earlier, I like to ask questions. And so I ask a question of myself, and you can listen in as I ask these questions in my own brain. Why does God allow us to go through times of trial, times of testing. Why is it that life has to be hard? Why do difficulties have to come? I might even be tempted to think that if I were on the throne, things would be different. It wouldn't be so hard. I ask myself, if God could intervene, and I believe he could, 
I trust you believe it as well. If God could intervene, then why doesn't he? Why doesn't he step in? Again, I might be tempted to think, if I were the one calling the shots, I would. I would intervene. I know folks, you've known folks, maybe you're one of those folks who have gone through something intensely painful and difficult in life. I would intervene. I would help. I would do something. At least I'm tempted to think that I would. And sometimes the Lord does. If, if you read the scriptures, you can find examples. You can read the stories for yourself of times when God did, in fact, intervene. When he stepped in. When he parted the waters of the Red Sea. When he drowned all of Pharaoh's armies in the midst of the sea. When he parted the waters of the Jordan. We could go on and on. Times when God intervenes and steps in and does something and says, no, that's not going to happen. We're going to do something different. Maybe you yourself have experienced that in your life. You can attest to, you can witness to times in your life where you saw the very hand of God at work in your life and God intervened. But you know as well as I do that he doesn't always do that. He doesn't always intervene. Why is that? James has the answer for us here in verses 2 through 4. God has a purpose in allowing times of testing and trouble in our lives. God has a purpose. James tells us in these verses that testing produces endurance, perseverance, Patience, whatever your translation says. Testing produces endurance. What good is endurance? Well, it's simply a Christian virtue that runs right down the middle of the road of all of the Christian virtues. Faith, hope, love, and right through the middle of those runs the thread of endurance. Testing produces endurance. What does endurance do? Endurance brings me at last to a place of maturity, completeness, lacking nothing. Maybe your version of the scripture says perfect. The idea is maturity. I have an apple tree outside my bedroom window. I look out that window quite often. I'm looking at those apples as they're growing bigger and bigger week by week, and some of them are starting to mature. I'm looking for maturity. I want completeness. I want them to lack nothing except the worms. They can, they can lack the worms. That's fine. Testing produces endurance. Endurance brings me to maturity, completeness, lacking nothing. And James says, because of this, I should learn to rejoice in the midst of difficulties. I should learn to rejoice. He says, count it all joy. Count it pure joy when life gets hard, when there's trouble, when there's difficulty. Rejoice. Why? Why? Because when life gets hard, I can know that God is allowing it because he's using it. The potter is at work at his wheel and he's applying pressure to shape me according to his design. And what is the potter's design? 
I think Romans 8.29 answers it for us. Romans 8.29 says, For those that God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Conformed to the image of His Son. That word conformed is a pressure word. It means applying pressure to shape. God is at the business of conforming you and conforming me to the image of his son. Matthew 5:48 Jesus himself said, "Be perfect, be mature, be complete, lacking nothing, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect." God's design is to make me like him, that I might have a character like Christ's. Not one single part of God-like character will be lacking. Colossians 2.9, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And that's what God is after. He will use all kinds of things to accomplish this in me so that I might have a character like Christ's so that not one single part of God-like character will be lacking. And I know it well. And truthfully, not as well as I ought to know, not as well as I need to know, but I know it well that I am not there yet. I cannot honestly say that there is not one aspect of God-like character that is not lacking. So therefore, I can expect that God is going to continue working at the wheel, shaping the clay, pushing, applying pressure, molding it, sometimes smashing it back down, dipping his fingers in and pulling it back out and lifting it up again as he continues to work on me, refining me, shaping me, conforming me to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what God is after, and he'll use all kinds of things to accomplish it even difficulties. Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. And His purpose, remember, is to conform us to the image of His Son. All things work together for good. All good things work together for good. And also, all difficult things. All troubling things. All bad things. God will use anything and everything in the life of his child to bring that child into conformity to the image of his son. I want to be careful here. I do not believe that God causes all bad things, all difficult things to happen. To be sure, there are times when he does chasten and discipline us and he brings certain things to bear in our lives. But I do believe that there are things that happen in life that God didn't decree that that should happen to you. But he will nonetheless use it. That potter at the wheel will use what life is given and he will use it to bring you into conformity to the image of his son. Praise God. Nothing's wasted if only we allow him to work at that wheel. Now, 
a question might arise, and I think James anticipates it. What if I'm not mature? Yes, I know I'm supposed to count it all joy, pure joy when life gets difficult because I know God is at work. But what if I am not complete, lacking nothing? And what if I am afraid of not passing the test? I think it's a fair question. What if? What if I'm not there yet? It brings us to our second point, God's provision to our prayer, verses 5 through 8. James' answer is simple. I told you it's a simple message. James says, wisdom is what you need. If you're going through trials, if you're going through difficulties, if you're being tested, and you're having a hard time celebrating that, if you're having a hard time finding the joy in the midst of that, wisdom is what you need. Wisdom. I'm going to give you a David Hall definition. You can jot it down in your dictionary. Wisdom is the skill of living according to the Father's way and will. Wisdom is the skill of living according to the Father's way and will. If I have wisdom, His wisdom, I'm able to push through the difficulties and trials of life. I'm able to push through the testing and the trouble with a Christ-like attitude and rejoice knowing that the potter is at the wheel. He's shaping me. He's taking off the rough edges. He's refining me. He's conforming me to the image of a son. James says that if I'm not mature yet, if I'm struggling with the testing, and especially with the rejoicing part of the testing, that's a tough one, the rejoicing part of it all. What I need is wisdom. I think Paul would have put it another way. In fact, he did. Paul would have said that what I need is to walk in the Spirit. That I need to be led by the Spirit. I refer you to Galatians 5, 16 through 18 and verse 25. Galatians 5, 16 through 18, and verse 25. The Apostle Paul says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Paul talks about being led by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. James simply phrases the same idea in a different way. For James, divine wisdom is the thing that counteracts evil in human life. Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit. James talks about God's wisdom operating in our lives. They're talking about the same thing. They're using different words. There's no disagreement here. Let's see how James describes this divine wisdom that he's talking about. You have to turn to uh, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. James 3, 13 through 18. He says, Who among you is wise in understanding? By his good conduct he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, hold on to that little phrase right there. Bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart. Don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, that is, it's not from God, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, 
full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. James talks about the divine wisdom that operates in our lives. Let's compare his description with a mindset, an attitude that the Apostle Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, 1 through 8. The Apostle says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Remember that phrase? But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Who had this attitude? Who had this mindset? Paul spells it out clearly. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Paul's language about being filled with and walking in the Spirit and James's talk about divine wisdom becomes even clearer to connect when we look at Colossians 2, verses 3, 9, and 10. Colossians 2, 3, 9, and 10. Paul says, In Him, that is, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by Him. Paul talks about an attitude, a mindset that is identical to the attitude and mindset that Christ displayed. Christ in whom all of the fullness of God dwells bodily. We're to have that mind. We're to have that attitude, that mindset. James talks about divine wisdom. He's talking about that mindset. Now, a reasonable question is, where do I get this wisdom? Yes, yes, I know I can read about it. I can hear about it. How do I cultivate that and develop that in my life? How do I demonstrate this attitude, this mindset that Christ himself demonstrates? How do I get this wisdom? Again, James's answer is simple. He says, ask for it. Ask God for this wisdom. If what you need to be mature complete, lacking nothing, is the wisdom of God, the mind of Christ. Just ask for it. Ask for wisdom, trusting in God's goodness and generosity. I refer you to Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. Luke 11, 5 through 13. Jesus is speaking. He said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he's his friend, I mean, 
that ought to be enough motivation. But even if he's unwilling to get up and do the right thing for the sake of friendship, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, continuing to knock at the door in the middle of the night, he will eventually get up and give him as much as he needs just to get him to go away. Now Jesus says, if this man in bed would do that, how much more will your heavenly father, who isn't anything at all like that man in bed, how much more will he give good things to those who ask? Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Ask and it will be given to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, because he's hungry, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg to eat, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus is using an illustration of contrasts here. He said, if that friend won't get up out of bed, other than to just silence the annoyance of the knock at the door, how much more will your heavenly father, who's not like that guy in the bed, give a good thing? If, if there is, perchance, some wicked, evil-minded father who inconceivably would give a snake instead of a fish or a scorpion instead of an egg, how much more will your heavenly father, who is good and gives good things to his children, how much more will he Give the Holy Spirit, which is the very best thing of all, to those who ask. This is what James is talking about. He says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. What is wisdom? It's the Holy Spirit. It's Christ's mindset. It's God's will operating in your life. The skill of living according to God's ways. Ask, and he'll give it to you. Now, there's, there's an interesting word here I want to point out. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. That's how my version puts it. Uh, yours may put it slightly differently, but that idea of gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, the word simply means simply. God is a simple giver. I'm sure all of you at some point in your lives have known someone that you didn't want to go and ask for a favor, for advice, for something that you needed. Why? Because you knew that it wasn't going to be easy. There might be strings attached, or they might try to make you feel stupid. They might try to make you feel like you're obligated. For some reason, you just didn't want to ask that person. But God doesn't give that way. God is a simple giver. He gives generously. He gives ungrudgingly. Father, I'm going through difficulty. I need your wisdom so I know how to live your way through the midst of this. And God says, what? You again? Well, what did you do with the wisdom I gave you last time? No. No, God doesn't give that way. He gives simply, ungrudgingly, generously. Ask, and he will give the Holy Spirit. Ask God for it. But James does provide a qualification for us here. Ask 
without doubting. Without doubting. James talks about a double-minded doubter. Double-minded doubter. I want to take just a minute to, to clarify what he's not talking about. And then we'll talk about what he is talking about. He's not talking about a person who wonders if God will answer his request. That's not the kind of doubter he's talking about. He's not talking about an introspective doubter who struggles with faith and trust. Double-minded doubter. Double-minded doubter is a person who is not wholly committed to God. He's, let's call it, playing it safe by praying. His real interest is in advancement in this world, in this life. But he also wants to enjoy some of God's blessings now as well. And of course, heaven when he dies. The double-minded doubter has divided interests. He has divided allegiances. He's buying fire insurance, if you can pick up what I'm laying down. Matthew 6, 24, the Lord Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, since he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. But let's roll back a couple verses. Matthew 22 the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Here's an interesting connection. When Jesus says, if your eye is healthy, He's using the same word that James used here when he talks about the way that God gives simply. If your eye is simple or single, is a literal translation of that. And the idea that was understood in their language of the time was a singleness of vision, a singleness, a simple focus, not being divided. Not trying to look this way and that way at the same time. Not dividing your attention or your allegiance. Singleness, simpleness. Now it makes sense why Jesus next talks about serving two masters and why that doesn't work. He's talking about if your eye is simple, if it's single, if you've got one unswerving allegiance and focus, and that focus is God. You're going to know how to walk with God. But you can't be focused on two different things at the same time. Well, maybe you ladies can. I don't know. You're pretty good at the multitasking. I know I can't. It's impossible for me to do more than one thing at a time. I have learned how to chew gum and walk, but that's about as far as it goes. Singleness of purpose. No one can serve two masters. Jesus was warning of the danger of double-mindedness. Wanting to pursue a path through life that's self-willed, self-directed, self-guided, but at the same time, hedging your bet with faith in God. You get the picture? Why does Jesus talk about money then? Here in Matthew chapter 6. You cannot serve God and money. I think because money makes a very fitting, very appropriate symbol for the other focus, the other system 
that's going to be talked about. The other type of wisdom that James is going to talk about. That brings us to our third point. God's perspective versus the world's in verses 9 through 11. God's perspective versus the world's. The Germans have a word, Weltanschauung. We translate it as worldview. Our translation might not be as rich as their word because their word, Weltanschauung, it refers to the way a person looks at life and existence and the entire world and reality. It's the lens through which reality is viewed and understood. Worldview. Verses 9 through 11 might seem like an unusual departure from James's topic. Let's read these verses again and consider. After talking about being double-minded and unstable in all his ways, this, this double-minded doubter, he goes into, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Um, just a quick note, I believe, my understanding is in reading through James's letter, when he talks about the quote unquote rich, he is not talking about believers in this context. There are a couple places in the letter where he does know about wealthy believers, wealthy Christians. But when he talks about the rich, he's not talking about those who are in the household of faith, I believe. I believe he is talking about those who are outside. There's contrast that he's drawing here. It seems like an unusual departure to launch into this section about the the poor man and the rich man. But I believe James is giving us an illustration here to help make his point. James has showed that the double-minded man is hung up between God's perspective and the world's perspective. The double-minded man is hung up trying to serve two systems, two masters, and it's simply not going to work. God is not going to honor this man's request for wisdom. Why? Because this man doesn't really want it. Though he might say it, he's only praying to hedge his bet. He doesn't really want God's way. Desiring God and God's way is going to necessitate letting go of any and all other ways. James pulls back the curtain, as it were, to show us the way that will win. It's something that John teaches us about in his little letter of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The apostle says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. The world system, the world perspective. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life or the pride of possessions, those things are not from the Father. It's from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Two different systems of viewing life. 
two different lenses. They are mutually exclusive. They can't hold hands with each other. They're incompatible. They don't walk together. They each present a lens for viewing reality, and they each present a type of wisdom or skill for living. And we read about that. I'm going to take us back to it again. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. We read it now with a little more understanding. James 3, 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above. It's a type of wisdom, but it's not from God. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. Frankly, it's demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the pride in one's possessions, what you call mine. There is a wisdom of the world. James describes it. He says it leads to disorder and evil. But the wisdom from above, from God, is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. Oh boy, it reminds me of that list that the Apostle Paul gives us in his letter to the Galatians, where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit, having the fruit of the Spirit operating in your life. James talks about wisdom, the wisdom of God operating in your life. James tells us that the man who is low by the world system's perspective can nonetheless boast in the lofty status that God in Christ has afforded him in God's system perspective. The man who hasn't made it according to this world's standards. That doesn't matter. If he has faith in Christ, he holds a lofty, exalted position in God's economy. How lofty? Paul talks about it in his letter to the Ephesians. Think about it. Seated with Christ in the heavenlies. A child of God. An heir of God. A joint heir with Christ. A man or a woman whose praise is not from men, but from God. How much better does it get? In God's perspective, your achievement in this world system, it doesn't matter at all. What matters is what Christ has achieved and your position in Him. So what point is James making about the man who is exalted by this world system, the rich man that he calls him? Where is his boast? Only in this. That the system which exalts him, the world's perspective, is passing away along with all of its lusts. The grass dries up, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. Christ reigns. All things are coming under him. The only boast the rich man can make, the man who has trusted in his riches instead of trusting in the Savior, is that his humiliation is coming. Why? Because this system is passing away. 
the world's perspective, it won't matter. Maybe you can think back to high school. Some of the people who were very popular, well-known, high-achieving in high school, and then what a shock it was to step through those doors to those hallowed halls and find out that got you nowhere in life. It was a whole new ballgame, right? Well, think of it like that. This world system, one day, isn't going to add up to a hill of beans. In the end, there's only one perspective that really matters. There's only one view that counts, and that's God's. Align your heart. Line it up. Prone to wonder as it is, line it up with God's perspective and ask Him for His wisdom to skillfully live life His way amidst all the troubles and difficulties that you will experience. And know that He is using all things, the troubles included, to conform you to the image of His Son, to mature you, to make you complete, lacking nothing. Ask for wisdom. He gives it simply. And you can learn to rejoice knowing He's at work making you into what He wants you to be. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the wisdom that comes from You. A wisdom that is pure, peaceable, gentle, full of good fruits. We thank you for that mind which Christ had. He emptied himself. He did not exploit his opportunities for advancement, but he yielded himself perfectly to your will. Help us to learn to do the same so that we can learn patience, learn endurance, and by it we might be matured, that we might be complete, lacking nothing, as we are being conformed by your hands, according to your will, to the very image of your Son in whom you delight. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for having tuned in with us today. We hope you found the time in worship and the Word to be encouraging, challenging, and strengthening. If so, we'd love to hear from you. We realize there are so many ways you could spend your time. We're glad you chose to spend it with us in worship and the Word. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all today, this week, and forever. <laughs>